Hello, I'm Annalisa Mackey, CEO of PADS Program LLC, publishers of the award-winning PADS Social Emotional Learning Curriculum for Preschool to Grade 5, and the author of the Evidence-Informed Emozi SEL Program for 6th through Grade 12, and the co-author of the upcoming book, Social Emotional Classroom, A New Way to Nurture Students and Understand the Brain. Welcome to this episode of Social Emotional Us, a podcast for educators, parents, and anyone interested in improving the lives of children through social emotional learning. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Luna Rose, who is an accomplished public relations professional with experience of firsthand media knowledge from public policy to organization spokesperson to media production, as well as a parent to a middle school daughter and a member of the Tucson Unified School District Governing Board in Tucson, Arizona. Hi, Natalie, and welcome to our podcast today. I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And I'm really excited to talk to you about perspective taking. Would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself with our audience? Sure. So thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. My name is Natalie Luna Rose. I am a, on many things, I'm a mother, a wife, native Tucsonan. I am on the TUSD governing board, Tucson Unified School District governing board. I'm a new board member. And I am currently the Communications and Outreach Manager for the Arizona Center for Disability Law. I've had a very varied career working on the Capitol Hill, back down to the desert here in Tucson. And I'm a mother of a 13-year-old eighth grader. And I have two cats. And we currently just, there's a tortoise named Gary. So a quick overview. Great. Well, thanks so much for that. So let's just jump right in, shall we? It's, you know, it's been a rough year and a half, I think, for most of the world. Parents and teachers have had to balance uh, virtual learning and personal responsibilities. Students have had to learn to take courses online. Uh, They've not been able to see their friends and socialize like they would normally have done. Right. Um, I know myself, I've always done a lot of work from home. So for me, working from home was not such an issue. Um, I was also wondering about how do you think perspective taking and understanding other points of view help us during the stress of the pandemic, both personally and professionally? I'm lucky. I've been very privileged to be able to work at home during this time. And when my daughter was remote for the last year and a half, she recently did go back in person. It was, it's, it's a privilege and it's been my privilege to be able to do that. So it's been interesting to be able to actually see people in their natural habitat, right? As opposed to their professional work life office sort of experience. If anything, this pandemic has given us a front row seat to the inner lives of people and how we relate to one another, how we haven't related to one another, how we're now relating to each other and trying to balance, as I call BC, before COVID. I was working in an office uh, in downtown Tucson. Everybody has their own office with their own door and you could close it and you could sit there all day and not have to talk to your colleague. And working from home now, I've been at home since March 19th of 2020. It's really opened my eyes on how, how much we actually need each other. But also, 
And I think that need for each other has also parlayed into realizing that we actually need each other, I think scares a lot of people. And it's allowed me and the other people, you know, you hear the dogs barking, you hear the UPS man knocking on the door, you can see the kids running around. I mean, my cat still likes to, I'm surprised she's not trying to jump on my laptop right now. I mean, she, I've had a, she mustache is notorious interrupting my Zoom meeting. So you see the realness of people. Right. My husband is in a different field. He works in the restaurant industry. His view of COVID could not be more different because he was out there every day. I think it's perspective, but I think even in talking to him, realizing that we need each other and there's a lot of realness, which scares people. It does. Right. And I'm wondering when you said that, you were talking about seeing, you know, the lives of other people, their real lives, not just their professional lives. Or when a student comes to school as a teacher, you just see that child in your classroom as a student. You understand, of course, that they have parents and family and the whole thing, but you only still see that child as a student in your classroom. You don't have a chance to see that full picture of their lives. And so teachers, I think, have had that opportunity now to see their students in a different light, like other professionals have had a chance to see their colleagues in a different light. So I'm wondering if you think that that has helped teachers with uh, their perspective on their students or not. Do you think that students have a different perspective of their teachers or not? And do you think that their students have a different perspective of each other? I'm going to say yes to all three. I think on the teacher's end, but I think with that, with that yes, there comes a lot of caveats. And I think one of them, at least for teachers, is that in the teachers I've spoken to, not, you know, my daughter's teachers and then just teachers as being a school board member, you do get the real glimpse. And for some students, it was worse off for them than they had realized. On the flip side, it was better than they had realized, and perhaps the student had been exaggerating a bit. But for the most part, I think seeing those students, and you know, and the teachers are doing double duty, you know, online teaching is not easy, and the burnout is high. And I think coupled with actually seeing the real lives of their students, the burnout remains high. And I think it's just because they know that it's not enough. And it shouldn't be on the teacher to make it enough, but they already feel that sort of obligation to do that anyway. Right, they take that on. Right, and so to see that, and I felt that as a parent, because my daughter was in seventh grade last year doing it, and she didn't have to be online until 8.45, but at 7.30, I was getting her up. She was going to go take a shower. She was going to get dressed, and she would argue with me about it, but i you know, I, I said to her, I'm not leaving either, but you see me getting up and showering every day because this is what we do. Just because things have changed in the world doesn't mean that things have to change at home in terms of being dressed and being ready and being attentive and, and show the respect for your teachers and your classmates. She would tell me after school or after class, oh, this, this kid did this and this kid did that. I think she... Well, my daughter is, she's very empathetic. She's a very sweet, sweet girl. 
I think it made her realize that the same thing, that things aren't all peachy, you know, that the kid that came to school every day in sixth grade with a new pair of vans and new backpack and that she's realizing that, you know, a lot of her classmates aren't as privileged as she is. And I think that was one thing. And then others that she knew not just were as privileged as she was, but were, you know, smart and, but they weren't doing their work and weren't turning things in and failing. Right. But then it happened where she, halfway through seventh grade, we had to have a conference with her teachers because she was getting up every morning because I was making her get up. I was making her log in, but she was just sitting there throughout her classes. She had three F's at one point. She's an honor student and she had just hit her wall. A lot of kids had hit the wall and the kids who had never ever once got an F in their life were failing. Having your child in, you know, middle school child, especially because that's such a, it's that transition age between little kid and becoming an adult and they need a lot of guidance. But when they're stuck in the room for, you know, eight hours a day, at least doing school, six to eight hours a day, and then just being in there because they don't want to come out and they're talking to their friends and they're looking at stuff on social media, I, I think it created a lot of disconnect. And I think I know that happened to a lot of her friends. But it was really frustrating because I couldn't, as a, even though I'm working down the hall, I could not go and monitor her in her classes because I'm working. And I've got my own things to do. And my husband is out doing what he needs to do for his job. So I'm also hoping that it opened the eyes to the public that schools, whether they're private or public, are places that are, well, of course, they're needed because we need to educate our children. But they're really places of community. Um, And they're places that provide stability. A structure. Now, I know there were some students, I, we have a really good friend of my daughter's that he was one of those struggling students in school, but last year got straight A's because he didn't have the distraction. Right. I think that for a lot of kids, that sort of structure can be very beneficial, but for other students, uh, the structure in which we teach in the typical school system doesn't work. So it goes back to, you know, learning styles. How do people learn? How do you, you know, what's the best for each child? I was also wondering about, you know, you were talking about perspective and how kids got a glimpse at, you know, maybe what other students' lives are really like, uh, other teachers' lives are really like. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, balancing that real, that reality of that glimpse of what they saw with the false image of social media, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, all these things where kids are only really putting on the great things that are happening in their lives. And so then, of course, kids, you know, try to measure their lives up with what they see in social media. And sometimes they find themselves wanting as a consequence. So do you think that this rea- this opportunity to see a glimpse of reality gave a better perspective? Or, and do you think that's going to be a lasting perspective? Or 
do you think once we go back, it'll just be business as usual? No, I don't think it can be business as usual. I think too much time has gone on. I think there will be some, you know, there will be some people who will just try to go back or just completely forget about it and move on. And I mean, that's how history repeats itself, right? Because we don't remember, you know, a generation later. But I think with this in social media, we just had this discussion with my daughter within the last month, because I think there is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to be somebody you're not. I think the pandemic has really opened up a lot of discussion on who you are. It's taking, I mean, you're spending a lot of time with yourself. So there's a lot of self-reflection. There's a lot of family dynamics and you know, people losing their jobs, people being with each other too many hours of the day, you know, couples that normally, you know, close quarters after a while, you know, it's it can grate on each other's nerves. So it's easy for kids to dive into social media because then they can ignore everything around them. Right. I mean, it's a great tool, obviously, for communication. And as somebody who has a background in communications, I mean, that's how I do part of my job. But I think it's also, you know, it's also there's really dark, nasty underside of it. That right. But it's, you know, it's social media is is something that's not going to go away. And it's something that we as adults have to guide in a way that is healthy for them without stifling their creativity, without cutting them off from the world, from their friends, from the way they communicate. So what do you think, like when you're trying to talk to your child about helping them understand perspective, what do you think is important to be communicating so that they are not just thinking about, you know, what they, their, their side of things? What are the steps you think that are important, especially from a parenting perspective, you know, and or a teaching perspective as to how do you help kids understand that other people think differently? That's a good question. I think sometimes that's hard, especially with the national discourse of right now, everybody just yelling out into the void and not listening to each other. I mean, our kids are copying us, whether we think they are or not. So, they are. you know, her perspective, I like talking to her a lot. She's very smart. She's very in tuned. But what happened to me last night, oddly enough, that we're speaking about this, kind of gave me some a glimmer of hope in terms of discourse. We were at my daughter's open house last night at her school, and we are sitting in her government class. And this happened twice in two different classes. First was the government and the teacher. He was speaking about what they're working on. He's divided the class into, they're studying the Constitution and the Federalist Papers. So one class are going to be the Anti-Federalists and supporters of Thomas Jefferson. And there's going to be the supporters of Alexander Hamilton. And that they're going to have you having this discussion. And some of the students that were in the class last night started animating, you know, talking very fast about it because he asked, well, does anybody want to talk about what we've been talking about? And a few of them were just so excited about their point of view and what they're doing and what they're working on and, and that they're going to be recording it so they can show the school what they're doing. 
And I think those were the Federalist kids, but then the anti-Federalist kids, which included my daughter, because she was put in that group, that they want to do one better. And they actually talked about, maybe we'll do a podcast for the school. So this is a way to get kids talking about, well, of course, history, but using a social medium for what they need to do to further their learning, but also the discourse. So Mm -hmm. I was excited about that. And then a couple, you know, minutes later, we were in her language arts class and teacher, she was talking about what they're going to be doing every quarter and that the fourth quarter is strictly going to be about speech and debate. And she even said that she gets people who are surprised that she does speech and debate in her class because nobody really does that anymore. And I could not be more excited about it. And again, because it is the same group of core kids that are in this program that my daughter's in, once again, we're so excited about speech and debate. Like they're ready for it. And I think right. we didn't give them enough credit for it. And, and I'm hoping that the discourse that is happening among adults right now, even though our kids are listening to us, I think I feel like they are getting tired of it. Hmm. That they want something better. Right. I know that in school, especially in you know preschool and elementary school, when children are really young, teachers do talk a lot about how they having kids role play different sides of the, of the coin, especially when they're doing problem solving. You know, they'll have kids try different ways to solve problems, role play those possible solutions, and then you know, try to choose the best one. And we know that role play is really great because it puts you in another perspective and gives you a chance to sort of see a different side, in quotations, argue a different side, right? And it's interesting that you're talking about speech and debate in a middle school setting that is essentially in some ways, you know, a flow upward of what role play would be in an elementary setting, you know, where you take a different side of situation and think about, you know, how would you communicate that perspective, right? And I think when we're talking to our students about problem solving and trying to negotiate with them around getting along with each other, and it sort of even goes back to, you know, what we were talking about with being at home with people that we're living with and feeling a little too close to each other, right? That in part when you're thinking about perspective taking and problem solving and getting along and relationship, right? That one of the core elements of being able to do that is sort of seeing someone's the other side of the argument. You know, being able to see the other side is all it is a foundational piece of building empathy. Right. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. You know, you've had a varied career as as you've discussed. And now you're on the school board. What outside factors do you think have influenced your perspective and ability to see other people's points of view? Because I would imagine, you know, being elected to the school board, you are representing, you know, the people of your community and their perspective too. I think part of it to allow my perspective to evolve was being involved at my daughter's elementary school. I was an extremely involved parent. 
I was president of the site council. I was president of the booster club pretty much the whole time of while she was at her school. And it was an eye opener to me in terms of the fact that traditionally where my daughter's school is small school and in years past would have been the school for children that came from more affluent families. And over the years, it is now a Title I school and has been for a while and has a high rate of students that need some sort of financial assistance. The school had its own community food bank, its own clothing bank, although the district has a big one. The school itself has its own one. And a lot of our schools in the Tucson Unified School District have them. We're a minority majority district. We have a lot of low income families. And I grew up not too far away from where she went to school, probably not even less than half a mile, maybe even a quarter mile. But my perspective was really different growing up. My father is a child of migrant workers. My mother was the child of a mom who stayed home and her father was in the Air Force. And he, But we always had a roof over our head. I never had to worry about clothes on my back or any of that stuff. But, you know, I know my parents struggled because they also had kids very young. I wasn't worried about where my next meal was going to come from. I wasn't worried about if my dad was going to lose his job. I wasn't worried about any of those things. Becoming a parent and then becoming very active in the school allowed me to see that even though the school that was known to be in the quote-unquote rich area was now a Title I school, it's open enrollment school. So kids from all over the east side were coming to our school because it was a nice small school it was considered a good school to, it had a lot of things going for it. But then to find out when I became the president, especially of the site council, that how many of our students didn't show up on time. Some students only came to school two or three days a week. Just so many different factors that you don't realize until it's right there and you hear it in the office every morning. And those type of things and doing that for about six years was kind of part of the reasons why I wanted to run for the school board because I also felt that our district, it's a huge district, 89 schools, almost 50,000 students that sometimes does not do well in meeting the needs of our students. And I think partially it's because it's large and there's just so many moving parts. So it sounds to me like then, you know, the stories that you're telling me that it's really about, you know, hearing other people, exposing yourself to different ideas and, you know, understanding that kind of, kind of coming in with an open mind and hearing what other people are, are saying to give you a different view of reality, right? You were talking about the school that, you know, you uh, went to when you grew up and how that's changed. But to hear that all those, you know, and but but when you were there working in the school, rolling up your sleeves and hearing all these different changes and all these different things that students today are exposed to or, or dealing with, that's helped you to see a different side and help you to maybe represent a large group of people in a more inclusive sort of way because you've seen what they what people are dealing with. Would that be a fair assessment? It would. So 
when I'm as a school board member getting those comments, whether they're online or through our call to the audience, emails in my inbox, calling me names and, and, and the language used and the level of hostility is some days, I mean, a lot of it's laughable to me, but there's some other days where it's just, it's appalling that another adult chooses to speak this way to another adult is really hard to not want to shut. I think that you make a really good point about that. It's also about when you're trying to express, you know, it's how you say something, right? If you, if somebody is really a strong advocate for one perspective, definitely calling somebody names because they disagree with you is not a way in which to uh, encourage them to hear right. your argument, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, right. I'm, I'm totally, I'm all about the discourse. I'm happy to have a conversation with somebody that sees differently on an issue and because I want to know where they're coming from, especially if they've come from a background like mine or something similar. How did you get there? Tell me what you're reasoning. I want to hear. I want to learn. It helps me. And that hopefully helps them. But yeah. and that's the thing, the thing that we're trying to teach our kids, right? In school, at home, hopefully, right? That, you know, it can be a real passionate thing that you think about or how you feel. You could be very passionate about a topic. But the way in which you communicate your ideas is an important thing in terms of being able for other people to be able to hear you so that they might consider the side that you're taking that you're you're offering right um i I think that there's two sides to perspective taking on the one hand you know trying to hear what other people are saying whether or not you agree or disagree but to be able to hear what they're saying so that you can at least learn their perspective. The other responsibility in that equation is how you're saying what you're saying if you're wanting someone to hear your perspective. Right. We should. I mean, I didn't go listen to blindly. I worked for a member of Congress for 10 years. And some people, you know, there's always going to be, there was, for me, it was always this, there was this always small section of people that are always going to be mean and always going to be nasty and throw the names and call and say something inappropriate and hang up or send a letter. But like I said, I'm, I'm hoping all this national ugliness right now and this type of discourse that does not allow us as adults to listen to each other, whether at school board meetings, yelling at the teachers in the classroom or at work or at home, that our kids are going to pick that up and turn it around into something positive. That's my hope. That's what I'm always hoping for. So, you know, on the positive side of perspective taking, because I know that, well, I would imagine that being in public relations and especially working in the role that you have now with area of disability, that you would really you know, trying to craft that message so that other people can understand the perspective that you'd like them to, you know, what are those pieces that help you to get that message across in a way that people are open to hearing it? Yeah, you know, it's um, working uh, in the area of disability rights has definitely been an eye-opener 
it's a community that's forgotten a lot, unfortunately, despite the American Disabilities Act, the ADA, and things having to be compliant and accessible. So my job as a communications manager is to get the message out, get the word out in any way possible. A lot of it's been social media. I still do the old-fashioned press releases when, when need be. But I will say, if there is a positive to COVID, is the fact, at least for the disability community, has been able to push to the forefront their issues. Their issues of abuse and neglect, issues of not being able to get vaccinated because they don't have a ride. or And, and we've seen traction from the state about it. And the health departments from just counties by reaching out to them. Another way I've been able to do that is just making making contact with reporters and people on social media, tagging them. I found that has been very effective. Doing webinars and on different disability topics and sending it out to our not just our disability network, but asking them to send it out to their networks. And it's just this outreach. And I have found that people are craving, not only it comes down to people need each other and people are craving connection and one another. And they, everybody wants to have a good, happy life after COVID. And mm-hmm. my office, we, the Arizona Center of Disability Law, we do a annual conference every year. It's the African-American Conference on Disabilities. And for years, it was in person up until last year, and we decided to try our hand at doing our first virtual conference. In the years past, I've had maybe three, 400 people max attend our one-day conference, and we had 10,000 people. Wow, that's incredible. Virtual, oh yeah, it was insane. I was very tired (laughs) throughout the month of February, (laughs) but it just showed me people wanted information. They wanted to hear from each other. They wanted to see each other, even if it was on a screen. We worked with other partners throughout the state that also have Zoom, and it was free. And I just marketed it through, you know, the usual channels of social media, MailChimp, partners doing their thing, and sending it it far and wide as as much as possible. I think you're right that people are... There's so much, there's a, re- a desire now for more information because we have been so isolated. I think that that's a, an attempt at people reaching out to each other. And hopefully that that gets people more information, more connection, more perspective on other people. I want to thank you again today for coming and talking with us about perspective taking all of the varied experiences that you had and the good work that you're doing in your community in Tucson. And and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Today we talked about perspective taking and point of view, which we address in our MOSI SEL program for middle and high school students. To learn more about it, please visit our website at pathprogram.com. If our listeners would like to continue the conversation about this topic, please find us on Facebook under PAS Program. Feel free to ask questions on the podcast episode post. We'll answer them and we may feature the answer in future Facebook Live video. Please join us again next time when we talk about transition and the emotions that come with them.